0: If you've got a Bible, you can, uh, you can open it to John chapter 3, and I actually venture to guess many of you probably don't even have to open it, you've got it memorized. John three sixteen and 17. Well, like I said, if you've been with us this week, we've uh, journeyed with Jesus on his way to the cross, and from his arrival in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday through last night, we looked at the Last Supper and that intimate moment of him and his disciples. And I love if you've, if you've been with us or if you've followed along on social media and those readings that we've been posting and just being immersed in the Holy Week or the Passion Week and this journey of Jesus. I love how these events are, are, are all moving Jesus' mission forward. We, we know that Jesus came for a purpose this wasn't a random smattering of events. It's not like he rode into Jerusalem and it was like, "Oh, I think I'll go to the temple tomorrow." And then he cleaned, you know, cleansed the temple, and then oh, it's a dinner party and there's a woman with oil. This is weird. And then, hey, the crucifixion. <laughs> That's not how it worked. This was this was very uh, intentional with what Jesus was doing. I love how it sets the stage that all of this was leading to a culmination of something so cosmic and earth-shaking. Something so beautiful. Follow with me for a second. Jesus enters Jerusalem on Sunday as as kind of this invading conqueror, but not really. This was no threat to the empire of Rome. He was riding in on a donkey with palm leaves being waved. And so what was, what was going on here? This was not something that they would have been familiar with. This isn't something that the people of Jerusalem would have been familiar What's happening here? What is actually going on? Monday, Jesus goes into the temple and just cleanses it, tears it apart, calls out the, the priests and the religious leaders, revealing the holiness and the authority of God, that this is something to be taken serious. That something is happening here. He's, he's pointing us towards something. That something is coming. Something is happening. And I love that picture of how true worship of the true God stems from when, when, when we get that true cleansing of our heart, of our temples when the Holy Spirit dwells in us. On Tuesday, Jesus is having this series of conversations that just completely disrupt the religious leaders of the day, that completely turn, turn upside down the religious thought of the day. He calls out their error, their pride, their hypocrisy, all the selfishness. All the, he shows the error of making God into something that we can wrap our minds around. The error of, oh, I know, I know what God is doing. Oh, I know, I know how God works. Oh, I know what you need to do. I know how much you need to pay. I know what the things that you need to follow cuz yes, I know. I know this God on Wednesday the circle is growing more intimate. Jesus is at a dinner party and we see him be anointed with oil. Jesus shows us the heart of worship. We get glimpses into his royalty of what's happening that the unnamed woman, a sinner, broke her flask of oil and poured it upon Jesus' head. And in her heart, probably unknowingly even to her, is anointing and worshiping and sacrificing, pouring out to the King of kings. And we're reminded of how we ought to worship. Last night in the Last Supper, Jesus paints this beautiful picture of substitution. Substitution. Of what he came to do. This invading conqueror from Sunday, a little weird, has now come to be broken, has now come to die. And he points in this, in how he breaks the bread and, and, and passes the cup to his disciples where he will take our place, where his body will be broken for us, where he will take the punishment in our place. And Jesus is setting the scene. He has arrived as king, kind of, lowly, meek, and humble on a mission from God, but a God who is holy and authoritative, A God who disrupts the ancient error of pride and religious idolatry. A God who demands pure worship and is worthy of that worship because of his authority, because of his royalty. A God who suffers, though. A God who gives. A God who sacrifices, substitutes himself for us, who pours out his blood and breaks his body for the sake of sinners. Do you see that movement? They thought they knew what God was like. They thought they knew what God was about. They thought they knew how God worked in the world. They thought they knew how God relates to mankind. And then Jesus showed up and revealed through these events what God is like and what he is doing. This is the kingdom of God. It's that ancient promise coming true. And John sums it up so perfectly. In John three sixteen and 17, you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son That whoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God didn't send his son to condemn the world. No, but that the world through him might be saved. That the world might be saved. That's beautiful. (laughs) That is beautiful. Those are beautiful words that the world might be saved. Fyodor Dostoevsky, the Russian uh, thinker, philosopher, and brilliant author, he wrote a novel called The Idiot in, uh, in the mid-1800s. And he wrote one of the most famous lines in all of literature. Perhaps you know it. It's that line, beauty will save the world. It's actually posed in the form of a question to the main character in the novel. Do you believe that beauty will save the world? And the main character Answers in the affirmative. It's a nod to Christ, to, to Christ and his work on the cross. Dostoevsky was a Christian. He was converted later in life, and he's pointing to the work of Jesus on the cross, this saving work of his death. But as we just read these accounts and the scripture reading, is it really. Beautiful? Jesus' grief, his betrayal, trial, torture, death. Can we see beauty in something so ugly? We call it Good Friday. Can we see something good in something so bad? Beautiful, really? Jesus tortured, falsely tried, mocked, beaten, wrongfully murdered, hanging in shame and defeat? Necessary, maybe. Loving, sure. Sacrificial, yes. But beautiful? Can we see that? I think Jesus is a beautiful king. As I mentioned, Jesus' ministry wasn't random. He came to save the world. He tells Pilate, I have come to bear witness of the truth, the salvation that will make things right between man and God. And do you remember how it started? Way back in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus comes onto the scene He begins his ministry. Matthew puts it this way. Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Not repent so you can go to heaven when you die. Not repent so you can live a comfortable life here on earth. Not repent so you can have everything you want here in this life. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. That beautiful, glory-filled, perfect place of God where everything is good and right, is here. It's come. It's here. And every beautiful kingdom needs a beautiful king, right? And we saw on, on Palm Sunday, the king rides in. The king has come, and the crowds acknowledge it. Hosanna, they say. Save now, King Jesus. You're here, and you're here to usher in this kingdom and all the beautiful things that come with it, right? Rome is going to be defeated. Our lives will re- return to normal. The economy will flourish the beauty of Israel will be restored. All the beautiful things that come with it. Nothing about their own spiritual state. Nothing about their sin. Nothing about their need for a savior. Nothing about the violence of the world and the oppression of the empires. Nothing about the evil that reigns from Satan's lies. And of course, man, in just a few days, that tone changed real quick from the crowds. Pilate asked them, what then shall I do With Jesus, who is called king, who you guys called king just a couple days ago, what shall I do with him? Let him be crucified. Some king. What kind of failed kingdom is this? What started as something promising, exciting, new, amazing. Jesus is going throughout the nation, healing people, casting out demons, feeding the hungry. The kingdom of heaven, it's here. Now ends up as a seemingly ugly failure. Because I don't need to tell you, the Roman crucifixion was anything but beautiful. Man, it was ugly, horrifying, intentionally ugly. It was me- The whole purpose of it was meant to shock you into submission to Rome. The whole idea behind this was meant for people to pass by and see a crucifixion and say, oh no, I will bow to Rome. I will bow to Caesar because I don't want that. That was the whole point. Intentionally meant to mess you up. (laughs) That the world through him might be saved. Man, he can't even save himself. They mocked. Kingdom of heaven, more like kingdom of defeat. Man, in this beautiful cross, we see a picture of the beautiful love of God. And so, yes, it was ugly. Yes, but the the cross is where all of mankind's evil and violence and sin rests. It's where it sits. Yes, that is where your darkest, evilest, most disturbing secrets are then magnified in physical form and placed in the body of Christ through whipping, through scourging, through the crown of thorns on his head. Yes, that is where my sin, that is where all the lies, that is where all the sorrow, all the pain, all of my mistakes, all of my brokenness are found in the cross how can that be something beautiful how can this be something beautiful because even with all of that even with all of the sin even with all of the evil the cross is the culmination it's the building up it's the it's the epitome of what Jesus has been showing all along divine disrupting cleansing royal perfect and holy love as displayed in forgiveness when he hung there. As we just read, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. That's where God's mercy was put on display for the world to see. When we cry out, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, we see it, we get the answer when we look at the cross. That's where the kingdom of heaven was revealed that's where it was made accessible for all of those sinners like you and like me. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's now here and we see it in the cross. It's where all of my sin, all of my evil, all of my pain, my brokenness is defeated. It's defeated. It's done away with. It's defeated. It's defeated in the cross by a loving God who forgives me. It's where the punishment for your evil, it's where the punishment for my pride and my greed and my selfishness is taken. It's where all the principalities and the powers that Paul talks about, all the oppression and injustice and sorrow and pain throughout the empires and kingdoms of world history, from the past to the present to the future, all everything that is wrong with all of it are brought to shame in the cross. It's where perfect, undeserved love, that self-sacrificing, others-oriented, perfect love is put on display and we don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. J.I. Packer meditating on the cross of Jesus, he puts these thoughts on the paper. It is staggering that God should love sinners, yet it is true. God loves creatures who have become unlovely and, one would have thought, unlovable. There was nothing whatever in the objects of his love to call it forth. Nothing in us could attract or prompt it. Love among persons is awakened by something in the beloved, but the love of God is free, spontaneous, unevoked, and uncaused. God loves people because he has chosen to love them. And no reason can be given except his own sovereign good pleasure. And where is this love most clearly seen? And it's in the death of an unlikely king. John explains this to the early church in 1 John 4. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. What is love? This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Church, the cross is the beautiful image of the loving king who saves the world. The cross is the beautiful image of the loving king who saves the world. And without faith... Man, the cross is just an ugly, shameful defeat. If I can't see it for what it is, then it's, it's nothing more than just another death of a rabbi teacher. But once I look at the horror of the cross and I see him standing there, I, or it's hanging there, when I see Jesus hanging there and I believe the words of John the Baptist years prior, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when I believe the words of those centurion who was standing at the foot of the cross at that moment, he glorified God and said, truly, this was the Son of God. When I believe that Jesus took my sin, he bore my sin. When I believe that he was buried, when I believe that later he was raised to life, then it all becomes beautiful. Then it all becomes so beautiful. When I look at that, And I say, this is my king. And on that day, man, 2,000 years ago, King Jesus is lifted up, and in his death, he made it possible for the world to be saved. I love these words from David Guzik. He says, Jesus' final words on the cross was the cry, it is finished. But this was not the cry of defeat. This was the cry of a winner, the cry of victory the plan that god set in motion way back on the first pages of your bible way back in genesis 3 when god is meeting out his punishment to the serpent the deceiver god says this yeah you'll bruise his heel talking about the coming savior king but he will crush your head and jesus cries out it is finished the head has been crushed as he bore your sins and mine the head of the serpent has been crushed. When I look at the cross, this is not a concession. This was not a temporary failure. This was not, okay, Satan, you got me, but just you wait a couple days. No, this was a victory. Author and Pastor Brian Zahn puts it this way, the crucifixion was not a defeat that was overturned by the resurrection. The crucifixion was a victory victory. That was revealed by the resurrection. This is the victorious king defeating the power of my sin once and for all. The kingdom of heaven is at hand and its king has been revealed victorious. King Jesus. The prophet Zechariah wrote to the Jews some 500 years before uh, Jesus was born. In the last few chapters of Zechariah's uh, writings, um, I love how Michael Coogan, the Old Testament historian, puts it. The last few chapters of Zechariah contain pessimism about the present, (laughs) about their situation, but optimism for the future based on the expectation of an ultimate divine victory. And the subsequent transformation of the cosmos. Okay, well, what did Zechariah say? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming. That's the line. Behold, your king is coming. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. And 500 years later, the Roman governor of the province of Judea is woken up on a random Friday morning early from his sleep. He's probably upset he's probably annoyed he's probably frustrated what do these Jews want so early and the Jewish leaders bring him this carpenter turned rabbi teacher oh yeah the guy that rode in on a donkey a couple days ago what is he doing here the Roman governor interrogates him interviews him questions him who are you what are you about why are you here he's no threat to Rome he doesn't find any fault with him the man is innocent and so he brings him out, but before he does, he beats him, he's, he's mocked, he's scourged, he puts a crown of thorn on his head, since, since they called him a king, they give him a purple robe, and he brings him out to the crowd, this Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and he sets Jesus up, As blood is pouring down his face, as he can barely sand. And this Roman governor, 500 years later, after Zechariah, says, repeats the very same words, Behold your king. Behold your king. And they led him away to be crucified. What? Is this our response to King Jesus? How are we going to respond? Can I just ask you? Is, is Jesus the king of your life? Is Jesus the king of your life? Do you, can you see the beauty in something so horrific as the death of Jesus? Can you see the beauty of surrendering to a king that is so loving, so forgiving, so merciful that he would break his body for you, so in love with you that he would pour out his blood to pay for your sins and to purchase you back to, your, to himself? That we can say, I am a child of God because of what Jesus did. Because I couldn't pay the price. I have no business being loved by this God. I don't deserve this king. The right and correct consequence for my life, for my actions, for my sin, is death and separation from God. I don't measure up. I have fallen short. That's what Paul says. All have fallen short. You've fallen short. I have fallen short. All have fallen short of the glory of God. But the cross isn't just a means to mend that gap. Okay, the cross, and now I can make it to God. Now I can, oh, now I can be there. Now I can get to heaven. The cross isn't just a, the, the stepping stone to get to God. The cross is a sledgehammer that breaks down those hostile walls that separated us in the first place where Jesus took it all away. And it allows us to, to behold our king. It allows us to behold our king and fall down in joyful worship. I'll ask you again, is Jesus the king of your life? If not, <laughs> tonight's a great time to change that. Maybe, maybe you've, you're, this is the first time you've set foot in church. And you've never heard this before, that God would love you the world, that God would save the world. Perhaps you've heard this a million times, that God loves you, Jesus loves you. These are not empty words. These are not empty words. Jesus proved his love. God showed his mercy by becoming the slain king to purchase us back to himself. I would, I would invite you to make Jesus the king of your life. And not by anything you do. The Bible says, repent. Jesus said, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. It's for you. You can believe the words of John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away your sin. And in the words of Zechariah, rejoice greatly because your king has come. I'm gonna pray right now. And if you would like to make that decision, if you'd like to to make Jesus king in your life, pray something along these words with me. There's there's no magic in them or anything like that, but, but pray something along these lines. Heavenly Father, I admit that I'm a sinner and I admit that I can't save myself, and so I surrender to the kingship of Jesus. Lord, on this Good Friday, I make the decision to rejoice greatly because my king has come. So Jesus, wash me clean. Cleanse me from my sin. I repent and turn to you. Lead me, guide me into your kingdom. Amen. And if, you, if Jesus is your king, oh, praise the Lord. Would you see the beauty in the ugliness of the cross? Would you remember his body broken and his his blood poured out as we come to the table of communion tonight? If you're here, you should have the communion elements at your seat. If you're watching from home, uh, you you can grab anything that's nearby if you'd like to partake with us. But as we take communion, we should remember what Jesus has done. In fact, exactly that's what Paul says. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11. Paul talking about the table, this, this, this meal that Jesus instituted. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. But then Paul says this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes, why in the world would we want to proclaim the ugly death of Jesus? Because it's not ugly. Because Paul knew, like you and like me, that this was beautiful, that it was this beauty that saves the world.